Good morning. If you have a Bible this morning, turn to the Gospel of Mark. While I play with technology up here. Gospel of Mark, chapter 11. When you speak at different places, it's always interesting how much real estate they give you up here. This is not bad. Sometimes you get uh, one square foot. It's good to be here. It's good to see you all. And I wanted to say a personal thank you to the believers in this area for welcoming our family. Um, some of you have been praying for us. People have just been kind, and we appreciate it. Um, and just in, in a sentence or two, I grew up among New Testament pattern assemblies or New Testament pattern churches. And so I have a passion for local churches, no matter how small or how big, that are trying to implement the New Testament's pattern for the church as best they can. And I got to grow up at a local church that was like that. I got to see it planted when I was a little kid and, and grow through my college years and now uh, being married and having children there. And so I developed a heart and a passion to help local churches like that, just to, just to try to be helpful wherever we could be. And we did that on the East Coast. And my wife, as many of you know, grew up out here. And so as we would visit family and friends you know, from year to year, just developed an interest in, in, in thinking about doing that out here. We began to pray about it, and our assembly was behind us, and so we've, we've relocated out here um, just, to, just to try to be servants, just to try to do like the Lord Jesus Christ did in Mark 10, 45, to serve and to be helpful and to try to be a resource and an encouragement to pray with you all, to think with you all about being uh, local churches that, as much as possible, fit the model and pattern seen in the New Testament. And that's built on the assumption that that's something that the Lord wants us to do, which is another topic. So this morning, I'd like to talk about what's up here on the screen. Mark chapter 11 and 12. I'd like to go through as much of it as I can today. And the topic is going to circle around the question of, do we recognize the rights of God? Does God have rights in his church? Does the Lord Jesus Christ have rights? We so often talk about my rights or my preferences or my desires or my goals for my life. And we come to a local church or people today go to local churches, the kind that they like, the kind that they want, that has their type of music and their type of worship and reads from their type of Bible and does all of these different things. And we have to sometimes wonder if we have never forgotten to ask, does God have preferences and does God have rights in that sense? Do we recognize the rights, the authority? This gets down to lordship, the lordship and authority of the Lord Jesus Christ in his church and in our personal lives. And we will see that in Mark chapter 11 and Mark chapter 12. I sat down, turn with, turn with me. I'll be reading from the New King James this morning. I hope that's okay. If it's not, somebody hand me an authorized or a different translation. We'll work out of that. Serious. Um, and... If you read through this, and you can do it at home, take a pen, take a piece of paper uh, on your own time, read through Mark 11 and 12, and notice how many times the issue of authority comes up. And this morning, I will try to point out seven, probably about seven different places where this comes up, and it's a theme. Um, and so let's begin, and let's read this this morning. And um, I guess I should turn to Mark. can't preach out of Mark if I'm in Luke. Mark chapter 11 
verse 1, and then we'll pray. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, and he said to them, Go into the village opposite you, and as soon as you have entered it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has sat. Loose it and bring it. And if anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it. And immediately he will send it here. So they went their way and found the colt tied by the door outside the street, and they loosed it. But some of those who stood there said to them, What are you doing, loosing that colt? And they spoke to them just as Jesus had commanded. So they let them go. Then they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their clothes on it. And he sat on it. And many spread their clothes on the road, and others cut down leafy branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Then those who went before and those who followed cried out, saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the kingdom of our father David that comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And Jesus went into Jerusalem and into the temple. So when he had looked around at all things, as the hour was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Let's pray. Father, this morning, we take up your word. Lord, this is not our, our Bible. This is your word and the word of thy son who is the word. Father, you know that I can stand up and talk and show slides, Lord, but only you can change hearts. Father, I ask this morning, and I know we all do together, that by your spirit you would take your word and apply it to our hearts in the way that we each have need of, Father. You know some of us need to be encouraged, some corrected, uh, some taught, some exhorted. Father, we ask that you would do that, Lord, that your word would not return void as you have promised. Um, we ask, even as was said of the Old Testament, help us to see wonderful things out of thy law. We pray these things in the name of your Son, who is the Lord, Jesus Christ. Amen. Just by way of background, don't worry, I've broken a rule with slides here. They will not all look like this. Um, but just a little, a little picture up here, and anybody who wants a copy of these slides or anyone I come and teach is free to have them and use them. Um, just by way of background, the Lord Jesus Christ and his disciples have been walking towards Jerusalem for about nine months. They've been heading towards Jerusalem. You remember how he said that he was set to go to Jerusalem. And so they've come from Jericho up here. You remember uh, Zacchaeus was there. And as they came out of Jericho, uh, the, the blind Bartimaeus, they healed him. And they came down uh, to Bethany where his friends uh, Lazarus and Mary and Martha were. And he, he raises Lazarus from the dead. And this draws a big amount of attention in the area and lots of people are coming to see Lazarus stirs up a lot of trouble because the Pharisees and the leaders of Israel want to put Lazarus and Jesus to death and this is really the last week of the Lord Jesus's life here on earth before he's crucified and so of the things that happen in these passages happen around the Mount of Olives and I'll show you some pictures but the story talks about the Lord Jesus Christ coming down into Jerusalem and um, one of the first things that I want to bring out, and I'll just bring out some simple points this morning. There's a lot of detail that we could go into, uh, but the first thing that I want to bring out is just a simple statement that you see here um, in, in Mark chapter 11. Notice what it says in verse number three. And if anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it. And immediately he will send it here. Now, Mark um, who possibly it was John Mark that wrote this when he listened to Peter preaching in Rome and showed this gospel to Peter, and Peter approved it. 
Um, John Mark doesn't highlight this statement a lot, but has it ever sort of jumped out at you? Here's a first issue right in the story of authority and ownership. This is the Lord's colt. Now, you know that this wasn't, the Lord Jesus had the garment that he wore, and he, he, he didn't have a, a home. He didn't have a place to lay his head. And yet we have this statement that the Lord has need of him. And there's a sense in which once they say that, whoever it is lets it go. It's his cult. It belongs to him. I mean, right away in the story, this theme of, of ownership and authority is introduced. They walk in, and there are other men saying, you know, by what authority do you have? This isn't yours to lose. So they say, no, the Lord has need of it. And that's the end of the conversation. And they take this little cult, and they bring it to the Lord. And it sets off a theme that will come up over and over again. His cult, he has need of it. Um, you know, what's interesting is that they had been walking for nine months. Of course, they've been sleeping and stopping. He didn't need a donkey to ride on for comfort to go over the hill and come down into Jerusalem. So why in the world did he get this animal and sit on it? It wasn't because he was necessarily tired. We read in Zechariah 9.9. Let's just turn there. Many of you know the passage. You know the, the prophecy. I think this was done deliberately to fulfill prophecy. It's a very beautiful passage. Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. Good. We're just going to go through some some topics this morning, some illustrations of authority and ownership. But look at this prophecy in Zechariah chapter 9. Zechariah writes, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Daughter of Zion was often Israel. Shout. And you might read that word shout, but you see they get excited and shout. There's something good that's being announced. Well, shout about what? O daughter of Zion. Behold, look, your king is coming to you. And then there's a description of the king. And this is exciting for Israel. The king, finally the one that would bring peace and righteousness and restoration to Israel and the prophecy, he's coming. And then it says this, he is just, okay, so he stands for righteousness. He's not a wicked king. He doesn't stand for unrighteousness. He's just in having salvation. Oh, that's a good thing. Now, they thought about salvation in terms often of political salvation or physical salvation. But you find out in the New Testament that he was also talking about ultimate moral salvation. He has salvation, but notice this, he's lowly. Now, who ever heard of a lowly king? I mean, maybe there was another one in history, but you don't, you don't hear about lowly kings. Kings tend to be a bit pompous and a bit proud, and the king's will is done, and if you say no, you'll have problems, and it can be off with your head. This is a lowly king. And he's, he's riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now, kings ride on horses. Kings don't ride on donkeys. You know, the Lord Jesus Christ, when he came as a, as, as a king the first time, he's described as coming as a lamb. The second time that he comes, he comes as a lion, the lion of the tribe of Judah. He comes the first time to bring salvation. He comes the second time to bring judgment and to deal with those that will not accept his salvation during an age of, 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 of grace. God has been gracious all throughout the history of the, uh, the, the world, but especially now. And here you see the same thing pictured. He comes not riding on a charger, on a steed. He doesn't come into Jerusalem. Isaiah said, he won't cry aloud in the streets, a bruised reed. He won't break a smothering flax. He won't put out. He came into Jerusalem, and he's riding a, a humble animal. 
but in Revelation it says he's going to come out of heaven on a horse, a white horse. Just notice the contrast there. This was an animal, a burden of peace. So that's why he got the, he got the donkey. Go back to Mark chapter 11. To fulfill prophecy, many of the prophecies were fulfilled by the Lord, a whole different topic. But just that first point up here, and I've numbered them, his cult. And I want to ask a question as I go through these, and I want to be careful as I make an application to our lives, that I, I don't want to pretend sometimes like the passages were deliberately speaking about us today. So I want to be careful with my application. But I'm going to ask you, do you have something in your life that the Lord has need of? I don't know anything about the man who owned this animal. But apparently he was ready and, and willing to let it go and let it be used. And we read that phrase in Mark chapter 11, the Lord has need of it. And when you come to the issue, the overarching issue of the rights of God, the authority of God, uh, the work of God, in my private life and in my personal life, is there something that I have that the Lord needs? Or will my attitude sort of be, well, this is mine, don't untie it. The other thing that's interesting is that I don't know if the man who let the donkey be used knew what it was going to be used for. It's just a little young donkey. I mean, that's about as humble as you can get. I mean, it's not a, not a nice-looking animal. They don't sound pretty. They're just work, work animals, a beast of burden, literally. What did it get used for? This was the animal that God rode into Jerusalem on as a king. And, and I don't mean to be emotional or dramatic, but you never know when you give something to the Lord to use what he's going to do with it. You never know. You never know. I don't know if this man had any clue what this little animal was going to be used for. And Jesus Christ sat on it and rode into Jerusalem as king of kings. His colt. Just a couple of pictures here. Um, those of you that are familiar with the geography of the area, that, that's great. If you're not, it will really help you um, to sort of see what's going on. The, um, here is Jerusalem looking uh, back towards the east, and the Lord came down this little valley uh, and into Jerusalem over here. I've just got a few slides. This is looking back uh, kind of from around the Temple Mountain towards the Mount of Olives. Just going to flip through them quickly. The Lord would have come down around this area uh, into Jerusalem. This sort of shows you the elevation. Bethany and Bethpage would have been maybe two miles away from Jerusalem, back here on the east side of the Mount of Olives. Uh, and so the Lord would have come over. And Luke says he comes over and he looks at Jerusalem and he cries over it. He weeps over it. It's one of the few times in the New Testament when we read about the Lord crying. And you've got to stop and think about that. Here the Lord Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, is crying. You ever think about God? What is God like? If you ever ask yourself or anybody's listening if these are recorded, I just wish I could know what, what it would be like to be with God, to hear God talk, to see God do things. I mean, what would that be like? That was what the incarnation was all about. You can actually look at the Lord Jesus and see what he would do and see what he would say. And hear Christ as God, as crying. What does, that, what does that inform you about the type of God that you have? This was not a misrepresentation of God because he is the perfect, the express image of God. Whatever Christ does is exactly what God is and, and an exact expression of who God is. He's, he's weeping over Jerusalem. Um, just another relief picture just showing you the valleys and the, the Kidron Valley and these types of things. Um, old drawing of Jerusalem. This is the Temple Mount. 
and he would have come into here. And this whole area is sort of known as the temple. Um, and there's a lot, of, a lot that takes place up here. It's very big. I've been told that if you lay the Eiffel Tower down, it would sort of be this length, just to give you an idea of how big that was. Big area. Uh, looking back at the, this is the Mount of Olives today, looking back at the Temple Mount here. Uh, so the Lord would have come down through this area. Uh, there's a neat model in Israel of, of the temple, the way it was, Herod's temple, and lots of things took place uh, in this passage, I mean, this area here. So um, just some thoughts. We turn to, back to Mark 11, and uh, let's look at us, what happened. Look down at verse number 7 here. Here's a second sort of topic of authority. Then they brought the colt to Jesus, verse 7. They threw their clothes on it, and he sat on it. Um, they spread their clothes on the road, and others cut down leafy branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And those who went before and those who followed cried out, saying, Hosanna, or Hosanna. This means, Lord, save, or please save. Some type of a statement about asking God to save. Now, I don't know the extent to which the people there recognized his messiahship, because you know those same crowds would do what in a week? They would crucify him. So it's hard to know what, what they really understand. They ultimately want political freedom, national freedom. The Romans are there. They've been, that land has been walked over for centuries. Is that what's in their minds? Do they really recognize who this man is sitting on a colt? Some of them do say they begin to cry out the statements from Psalm 118. Uh, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But just another thought is that here the Lord Jesus is coming into his city. And look what it says here in verse number 11. You might circle things, the Lord has need of it, or, or the colt. And here you could circle in verse number 11. The Lord Jesus went into Jerusalem and into the temple, and so when he had looked around. Now, you might read past that, but stop at those little phrases. He looks around. He's not a pilgrim coming to Jerusalem to sort of say, wow, look at these buildings. This is the king. This is the owner. This is the Lord, and he comes in, and he looks around at everything. And, you know, he's going to show up in two more days and deal with what he saw. What did he see when he was in the temple? Mark doesn't say just yet. And this is on Sunday, I believe would be the, the, the 10th day of the month of Nisan. They would pick out the Passover lamb. The, the dates and, and, and calendar issues are challenging sometimes at the Gospels, but he looks around. I wonder, as I read this passage, I think about Revelation 2 and 3, when the same Lord Jesus Christ walks among the seven candlesticks, the seven churches of Asia that John wrote about, and he does that type of thing, doesn't he? He looks around, and he says, you know what, let me tell you what I think about what's going on here. And I think here today, what if the Lord Jesus Christ was to walk in this morning and to look around and just to watch? What if he was to walk into my private life? Again, this theme of ownership and lordship and his rights. He walks in and he looks around. What would he see? Because ultimately, everything belongs to him. Everything is his. John chapter 1 talks about he came into his own. These were his. It was his world. He looks around. His city, his kingdom, he comes as as king. Look at verse number 12. Just going to go through these uh, rather quickly. We read there now the next day, so it is 
uh, a following day, when he had come out from Bethany, he was hungry. So we talked about the humanity of the Lord Jesus Christ. He was hungry. It's part of the, the design of humanity, even in perfection, to be hungry. And seeing from afar the fig tree having leaves, you might underline that phrase, having leaves, he went to see if perhaps he would find something on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. Now notice what he does. In response, Jesus said to it, let no one eat fruit from you ever again. And his disciples heard it. What do you think of that? Is that mean? Why did he do that? He cursed the fig tree. Um, you know, the fig tree, there are three trees in the Old Testament that picture Israel. The fig tree, not really trees, the olive tree, and then the vine. They, they, they come up over and over again, and here's one of them. And it's very likely that the Lord Jesus Christ was doing something that was a symbolic judgment on the nation of Israel. If the fig tree represents Israel, he comes in and he says, basically, I wanted fruit from this nation. I wanted obedience, I wanted blessing, I wanted worship, and I showed up, and I looked in the temple, I looked in my temple, my city, my house, and I didn't find any of that. And so then he judges the fig tree. Um, there are a number of Old Testaments. We won't go to them. But I, again, think back to myself, and I wonder if the Lord Jesus Christ gets from me what he deserves. The Lord is desiring worship. Remember in John chapter 4, the Father seeks worshipers. If you've ever wondered, are there things that God wants? But there's a statement in Scripture. God wants worship. The Father seeks worshipers. And those that worship him can go to any church they want and worship him any way they want because God's a postmodernist like us? No. They that worship him must worship in spirit. It must be spiritual worship. And they must worship in truth. It has to be based on truth. And then you have to say, well, then what does it mean to worship spiritually? Not carnally, fleshly, soulishly, but spiritually. What's spirit-led worship? If the Holy Spirit were here today and he led worship, what would he lead us to do and say? Well, one of the things that he would do is he would point us to Christ, right? That's one of his works, his ministry, is to point the, 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 the eyes of the church, not at himself, but at the Lord Jesus Christ. And worship has to be based on truth. Worship is not accepted ever in scripture simply because it's sincere. You never see that. When you go into the Old Testament, there were people that walked into God's presence in sincerity. And he killed them, in a sense. Or he wounded them. We have to make sure we worship a God who is really God. We cannot have a God who is merely a God of love and not a God who is righteous and holy or have a God who is merely or fully holy but not loving. If the concept of God that we have is all of one and not of the other, that is a false God. We worship a God who is both righteous and holy and doesn't put up with sin and hates it because it's so unlike him and what it does to his creation. But he's also a loving God. And that's as true today as it was when Uzzah put out his hand to stabilize the ark. When Uzziah tried to waltz into the temple. Or when the sons of Eli tried to take and just to come into the, uh, the, the tabernacle whenever they wanted. 
Remember what the Lord says to Moses? Tell them, don't come into my presence at any time. This is the way you come into my presence. And then lays out in, in Leviticus 16 uh, the prescriptions for the Day of Atonement. This is how you come into my presence. We have to serve and worship a God who is the way God is, not the way we want God to be. And it gets all the way back to the theme of, do we live with a worldview that is biblically based where we think about God the way God is, or do we live with a worldview that is humanistically based where we think about God the way we want God to be? And God has allowed people to go years with false concepts of who he is. He's gracious, he's patient, he sends his prophets, he sends preachers, he sends the word. But in my life and in my local church, if anybody's listening to this and for the believers here, do we serve God and worship him with the concept of, of he is the sinner and all things flow from him. He came and he wanted fruit. Does he get it from your life? If you were a fig tree, would you put out leaves? They're all leaves and no fruit. All talk and no action. The fruit's supposed to follow the leaves pretty soon after. How many of you have seen fig trees? I don't, do they grow fig trees out here? They probably they grow everything out here. I thought I was big stuff because I was from Florida where they have oranges. I mean, you guys have everything. You probably have Florida oranges in California now. Um, figs. There's figs there. Desire for fruit. Turn quickly to Isaiah chapter 5. This is not the first time this has happened in Israel, unfortunately. There's a song in Isaiah chapter 5. It's a sad song. What would God say or sing about you in your life? The prophet writes, now let me sing to... And you all have been studying Isaiah, right? What, let me sing to my well-beloved a song of my beloved regarding his vineyard. My well-beloved is a vineyard on a very fruitful hill. Who is that? Israel. He dug it. Look at God working here. He cleared out its stones. He planted it with the choicest vine. No cheap vine here. The choicest vine. Quality materials. He built a tower in its midst to look over it. He made a wine press in it so that he expected it to bring forth good grapes. But it brought forth wild grapes. God has invested in our lives through people, through the word, through those that have translated the scriptures, through those that have taught us. And he wants good grapes. He wants fruit. He wants it from our local church. And when the Lord comes, what does he get? And from some of you, he gets figs. He gets fruit. He gets worship. He gets service. And from some of us, he doesn't. And God is long-suffering with his people and we'll see that again. Mark chapter 11, verse 15. Go back to Mark. It's his, his rights to get fruit. And I should say this. I didn't really make the basic point. As you're turning back to Mark 11, you can tell me, I'm honestly asking this, what you think of the phrase in Mark 11, verse, I guess it's verse 14, where he says, where Mark writes, it was not the season for figs. Um, I'm told that the fig follows the leaf, and so since there were leaves, figs should have been not far behind. But I wrote a little note to myself that the rights of the Lord Jesus Christ take precedent even over nature. He was the creator. If he wants figs, he gets figs. I'm not trying to be funny. But there's that sense in which 
do we know who we're dealing with? Israel didn't know who they were dealing with. They didn't recognize. That's what the Lord cried about at the top of Mount Olives. He says, if you only knew the things that make for peace, you've missed it. This is the hour of your visitation. It happened. The king came, and you didn't know what was going on. He came into his own, and his own received him not. They didn't recognize him. His rights take precedence even over the laws of nature. Mark chapter 11, verse number 15. So they came to Jerusalem. Then Jesus went into the temple. Now he came in and looked the other day. Now he's back. And he began to drive out those who bought and sold in the temple and overturn the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he would not allow anyone to carry wares through the temple. You see him there? He's got everybody. No, 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 don't come in. Don't carry that in. Tell him to take that out. Don't come in here. Don't bring that in. And they're all standing there, and they're watching him. What does he think he's doing? Who does he think he is? He's got them all, and there they are. And here he is in his temple. And notice what he says. He wouldn't allow anyone to carry wares to the temple. Let me show you a picture here. This is probably not the best picture. I should probably back up here. This is the whole temple area. I think I've got one here. Sorry for moving around in the slides. Um, on the, this is the whole sort of open area, and the temple on the other side are columns like this called Solomon's Porch, and they would have lined these areas with tables, and rabbis taught here, and that the Lord met with the disciples here, and there's sh shade. I don't know that they were in this area here. And so he's making a real scene at, at one of these, these areas, and, and, and driving out people who sold things. Just to get it in your mind's eye, really where he would have been. And then we read in verse number 17. He taught them. Then he taught, saying to them, is, not, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations? But you have made it a den of thieves. Now you've all heard messages on this. And so I make, I'm just going to make the simple point again. The Lord came into his house, and he didn't find what he wanted there. He found people making money off of God, people keeping the Gentiles at arm's length, not able to come and pray the way that they could conveniently, doing all kinds of things. And there was some legitimacy. The, 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 the men there could have turned you to Exodus and say, now wait a minute, when God told us about the temple, he wanted certain types of money to be used and certain things to be done. And people can point you to chapter and verse for a lot of things. But at some point, the Lord came and he said, you missed the big point, and you've turned this into a marketplace. The big point is, is that this should be a place where people can come and worship God, and you've turned it into a place where there's business going on. And you could fill that sentence in with who knows what today. What have we turned things in today? Some of the places that, that, that I visit, in a sense, um, haven't done that, and I'm thankful for that. But you wonder sometimes when you look at local churches today, if the, the assembly, the church of God, has been turned into a market, uh, a parade, uh, just all kinds of different things. In a sense, somebody has said, and I would say this morning, I want to invite us, if we need to, in our hearts to give the church back to God. 
the Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 that we are the temple of the living God. And so I don't think it's a stretch to, to apply this concept to us. If the Lord Jesus were to come in among us, would there be things that he would point out where he would say, this should not be going on here? And I say this in exhortation to, to elders as to fathers. Sometimes, and I've seen men get the idea that this is their assembly. And by golly, what I say is going to go here. No, this is Christ's assembly. It's his flock. He's the shepherd. Isn't that what Peter writes? Shepherd the flock of God. We're under shepherds, those of us that serve in that capacity. And I can't say we're because I'm not a shepherd here at, at, at other assemblies. But it's his assembly. This is not my assembly. I, I don't have rights to do with it as I will. Let's take care and be careful that that doesn't happen. Those of you that are younger men, should Christ not come in the next five or ten years and you find yourself in a place of leadership, make sure that you recognize that it's his assembly, it's his flock. What is headship, by the way? What is leadership? Headship and leadership is making sure that whatever God wants done is done in, in the lives of the people of whom I have authority around. What, what does God want done? When you become a father and a husband, headship basically means, or the, it's worked out by saying, what does God want done in my family? What does God want, right? What does he need? What are his rights? In a local church, what does God want here? What does the Lord Jesus Christ want? Well, let's make sure that's what gets done. Take care with preferences. Let's take care with traditions. What does the scripture say? Why do I think the scripture teaches that we should do it that way? I could find you all kinds of verses with all kinds of words in them. Let's rightly divide the word and get a sense of what does God want? And let's make sure that whatever happens, however big or however small, there can be a place in Claremont where somebody can go and find a local church where people are passionate about giving God what God wants in personal life and in gathered assembly. That's a good thing. I think the Lord enjoys that. Let's just move on here. Here's a little comparison, by the way. I cannot vouch for this, but I had to throw it in. You would too. It's a good-looking slide. Comparison of Solomon's temple to Herod's. It's no wonder that the disciples... Remember in Matthew 23, they wanted to show him the buildings of the temple. They were big, big buildings. We don't appreciate big buildings anymore because we can build them easily. Um, but this was very, very unique in the world. Uh, and I believe that the, the temple shined with gold. They had, they had plated it with something, so it really shined in the sun. Uh, look at verse number 27. And I assume we're going to the, the top of the hour. Head nod, no? Yes? Okay, y'all stop me if I... Just start waving, and I'll get, I'll get down. Mark chapter 11, verse 27. And I'm skipping ahead here. And they came again to Jerusalem. And as he was walking in the temple, okay, uh, some time has passed, days passed. As he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him. I'm sure they set all, everything back up exactly as they had it before um, and kept doing what they were doing before. They came to him and said, by what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you authority to do these things? 
All right, it's time to, you had your dramatic moment the other day. You came in and you did your thing. Now we have to talk. Remember, they had power. They had Rome behind them. They could take and throw people in prison. They could whip people, beat people. And ultimately, these were the men that had the Lord Jesus Christ hung on a cross. So they, they knew they could, they could do some stuff. All right? Came back into town. Let's talk. Who do you think you are? And by what authority are you going to do these things? Give us an answer right now. What does he do? This is good. This is good. Look what he does in verse number 28. But Jesus answered and said to them, no, it's not going to go like this. He doesn't say that. I, I should be cautious with the scriptures. I will also ask you one question. Then answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John. Was it from heaven or from men? Answer me. Answer me. The authority of the Lord Jesus Christ is really brought out here. I mean, it's circled. The, the issue comes up. I mean, it was hinted at. It's, it's his cult and his desire for figs, and, and it's his temple and his kingship and his city. But now it actually comes up. These were men of authority. These were the men that they ruled this place. This was their city. They were used to people doing what they said. You know, it's, uh, it's interesting in the lives of men that men get to a certain place in life where, where they stop answering to people. And, um, and sometimes that can be a challenging thing in the life of a man as they age. Um, to forget that we're all men under the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, none of us are an authority to ourselves. And he says, no, you're going to answer my question. And he's really addressing their dishonesty. They didn't take John the Baptist seriously. They did the same thing to John. They want to know who you are, John, and are you going to get in line with our program? You know, who are you with? Who are you behind? And, um, and look what happens here. Verse number 30. They reason among themselves, saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, why then did you not believe him? But if we say from men, uh, they fear the people, writes uh, Mark, for all counted John to have been a prophet indeed. So they're stuck between their own, in fact, fear of the people, which put their whole authority into question, and the fact that they didn't fear what John the Baptist as a prophet did. So we have this whole issue of authority and rights and and, and, and who's really in charge here? Was God behind what John the Baptist was doing? Because if he was, then all of the, the leaders should have gone out to him and been baptized and confessed their sin. Of course, leaders don't have sin to confess. And so, what do they say? They reason among themselves, saying, and then verse 33, so they answered and said to Jesus, we don't know. We don't know. We're not going to cooperate. Okay. Verse number 33, and Jesus answered and said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. There is a 
challenging lesson to learn in the life of a believer. And this is not flowing directly from the context. I am making a link to something else taught in Scripture. And that lesson is that it doesn't matter how much of a heart we have for God or how right our biblical doctrine is, one of the hard lessons to learn in life is that we can't come to God and demand that he answer our questions. Some of you have learned that. Some of you will learn that. You can pound and you can yell and you can accuse and then you can apologize. But at some level, we have to remember that God is God. And he gets to do the asking. You remember Jacob? He wrestled with that angel, that Christophany. What did he ask him? What's your name? Did he ever get an answer? No. Samson's parents? What is your name? They asked the angel. Why do you ask me what my name is? Sing, it's wonderful. What is your name? There's a sense in which God has a right to... The name in the old world told out the character of the one who had the name. Remember, the Lord, uh, Joe McHale talked about that, changed the name of, of, of Jacob to Israel. Speaking of this character, maybe some lessons he had learned in his life. God has a right to say, I do the question asking, you do the answering. You remember Job, the end of Job's life? Job had all these questions he was going to ask the Lord. And the Lord basically comes in and says, why don't you be quiet for a little bit? Where were you when I created this earth? Let me ask you the questions. And at some point, I think in the life of a believer, we come to the place of brokenness where we're willing to say, Lord, even if you don't answer my questions, I'll keep following you. And that's one of the hardest things to do. I'm telling you, it's one of the hardest things to do. To believe even when we don't understand. minutes left. Answer my question. But there it is, verse 33, authority. I'll tell you how authoritative I am. I don't have to answer your questions, authorities. What are they going to do? And then to make matters worse, he turns and tells a story about them to everybody else. We'll just summarize this and close. He began to speak to them in parables. He began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and set a hedge around it and dug a place for it, put a wine vat in it and a tower. Remember this? This sounds very familiar, doesn't it? And leased it to vine dressers and went into a far country. In the time of vintage, he sent a servant to the vine dressers. These are the prophets of Israel. The vineyard is Israel. The vine dresser, or the, the owner, is the Lord. The vine dressers are the leaders of Israel. They were given uh, the, the vine. The servants that he sends to them are the prophets. And then ultimately, his son is the Lord Jesus Christ. Just, just to close on time, I'll just say... The Lord sends them prophet after prophet, leader after leader. Some they beat up, some they kill. And ultimately, he says, I'll send them my son. He says he sends them many. You see the, the mercy of God? Remember I said the Lord is long-suffering? That's his long-suffering. He just over and over and over again. And I don't hold to replacement theology. I believe that God is more long-suffering than people think he is. 
Israel was never an obedient nation. It's not like some, they crossed the line at some point and the Lord says, I'm done with you now. I, this is just too much. The Lord is long-suffering. He's going to have his will accomplished in the lives of people, whether they're sinners or not. That's a different topic. But the question again is raised, whose vineyard is it? Who does this belong to? Does it belong to the vine dressers or does it belong to the owner? Who do you belong to? Who does this assembly belong to? Is God getting the fruit out of your life that he deserves? Are we treating this local church like it's his or like it's ours? And then if it doesn't go our way, then we'll leave it and go get another one. My church. My assembly. I like it this way. This is my pew. These are my hymns. My hymn book. My piano. I paid for this. I did this. Me, 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 me. The Lord Jesus Christ walks and says, no, it's mine. You're mine. All of this is mine. And we're left with the possibility of bowing the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ and saying, thy will be done or not, and missing out on his program and falling under his judgment. Let's just close in a word of prayer. And tonight, Lord willing, we'll take up another topic. Father, this morning, as I stand here, I remember the words of James where he writes, let us not be many teachers for we shall fall under greater condemnation. Lord, I ask that you would help me to not be hypocritical and go contrary to things that I've charged and challenged this morning. Lord, and we would all say this morning with the Apostle Paul, we're not sufficient, Lord. You know that the flesh still wars against the spirit and we fail and stumble and we uh, do not walk in the spirit. And so, Lord, we ask that you would help us in, in all of the tiny ways in private life to give you what belongs to you, to bow the knee. Lord, it's easy for me to generalize up here this morning to say that, but sometimes it's really hard to know what that looks like in private life decisions with our children or our finances or our time. Lord, we ask for your help and your leading by the Spirit, that we would be people that do things God's way, that we would be people that, that own your Lordship and that serve Christ as Lord and that bow the knee to him, not just with our lips, but with our choices. Father, help us. We ask that you would get glory from us, that when people come among this local church at Claremont, they would say, wow, these are people that really want to do what God wants. And in our individual lives, that people would notice our passion for doing things your way. Lord, and we ask that you would lead us and give us courage. Lord, help us not be cowards. We ask that you would help us to do these things in love, like thy son did. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for your time.